So uh, it's been a it's been a couple of years, I think, since I've preached or taken the pulpit. But um, and I'm I'm sure you all have everybody's been glad to hear that. But <laughs> I always like to give a a caveat, a disclaimer before when I preached. Um, I always give the caveat this disclaimer: I'm not a preacher. I am uh, actually, for those of you who don't know me, um, Chris Melton. I'm I think. Probably most of you know me, but uh, I'm, a, I'm actually a lawyer. I've spent, <laughs> I like that that gets laughter, <laughs> but I've actually, I practiced law for close to 20 years, or actually a little over 20 years now, and in 20 years, I've represented probably hundreds, if not thousands of different clients of individuals, organizations, companies, uh, everything from universities and big Fortune 150 companies, all the way down to prostitutes and drug dealers. I've represented lots of different people and everything. And I'm going to give you a little little secret. Some of the best, some of the most joy, you know, wonderful clients I've ever had have been Christians. I've had some clients who uh, I had represented. I had the joy to represent a, a Christian-run company that, you know, even though most of my work is litigation, and so even the people who you're in opposition to, who you're adversaries, who you're on opposite sides of, you know, they still have respect and admiration for my client because they were just, they're different, and they, they uh, act with integrity, and every, all of their communications are just filled with courtesy and, and grace, and very gracious. And so it's a wonderful joy to represent Christians like that. And I'm going to give you a piece, another uh, little-known secret. Some of my worst, some of my most you know, difficult clients have been Christians. I've, I've represented a, uh, a company one time who had been they accused of a lot of pretty bad stuff, but even uh, but one of them was falsifying some records and and and. You know, as, as I'm trying to work out a defense strategy with them and talking it through with them, they've, you know, I'm saying, well, what's our excuse? And they looked at me dead in the eye and said, you know, we're Christians and we're just being persecuted for our beliefs by the world. And I want to look at them and say, I think you're not getting persecuted. I think you're getting prosecuted because you did it. <laughs> but it's really difficult with these folks because with that, especially some of these uh, clients like that, just that, you know, and it's, it's, you know, well, what's the difference between the two? Well, first of all, we're all humans. That's why you can have Christians who are both such a joy to represent and also so difficult to represent as well. We're all humans, so it shouldn't be a surprise. So what's the difference between the two? Well, you know, this, this client is looking at me, you know, they're viewing themselves as as martyrs in a culture war with planks in their eyes and this idea of self-righteousness. And really, where does that come from? It comes from, I believe, a fundamental misunderstanding of grace and mercy and sin. And I think this misunderstanding is, is prevalent and something that we have to be very cautious of and conscious of for ourselves. And the way that we do that is by looking at God's word and viewing ourselves with realistic understanding of who we are through the lens of God's Word. So that's what we want to do today. 
And uh, to do this, we're going to look at Psalms 1 and 2. And also, this, I, I warned all the, the high school and junior high students. Uh, Brian and I teach high school and, and junior high uh, Sunday school. And I, I warned them, this is all going to look really familiar because this is what we looked at, book one of Psalms, from, uh, from January on up until a couple of weeks ago. We transitioned to looking at... Um, to looking at some gospel stories. But so if there are any holes or anything that you don't understand, just go find a high school or junior high, junior high, middle schooler after this and ask them. But, but I, I would, I would warn you though, I'm going to give them free reign to ask you if you remember what you had and what you all talked about in Sunday school last month too. So, but Psalms, Psalms is a great book. And we, we've studied book one of the Psalms. Uh, 150 poems and, and songs, and they kind of work out to be God's prayer book for, or the prayer book for God's people. But they're written by numerous authors over a long period of years. And I think that there is a tendency, there's almost a, uh, a, a, a tendency to look at them in isolation of one another. And I think that we could read them sort of like, read them sort of like you might read a book of Emily Dickinson poems or Spoon River Anthology or something else like that of Shakespearean sonnets where they're all in isolation. But I think we'd be missing it. I think we would be missing something if we did that. I think the appropriate way, really, even though these are written over many authors over a long period of time, they are all divinely inspired. And so I would recommend, I really recommend studying the book of Psalms and looking at it from a canonical approach to realize that all of these Psalms are interrelated. They're all pointing us to the same thing and the same person. And, uh, you know, it's, it's amazing as you read that, you'll see where Psalm, one Psalm will give us a dilemma or ask a question and, then, and another Psalm will answer it. And it, it's amazing how God, as the ultimate author of the Psalms, wrote them, as we see that. So I, I just encourage you as, you, as you read Psalms, to, to do that and, and to take that more canonical approach. Um, and that's what we're going to do today with Psalms 1 and 2. Uh, turn with me, if you would, to Psalms, Psalm 1. It should be in the right, almost right in the middle of your Bible. Uh, if you could stand with me as we read Psalm 1 and 2. Okay. Psalm 1. See, before when I, last time I, I preached, I didn't need glasses, but I do need them now. I apologize. Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is on, in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season, and its leaf does not wither. In all he does he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the, law of the, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous." but the way of the wicked will perish. And Psalm 2, Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. 
He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and, ki- and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for uh, these psalms that we look to. And Lord, we just ask that as we open them up and look at them, that you would help us to see you. That we would know you better and love you more as a result of, of looking through this scripture, Lord. And uh, so we give this time over to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. You're going to be seated. So Psalm 1. Psalm 1 is one of the most familiar psalms that, that we have. I think it's probably one of the more familiar pieces of scripture. A lot of us have read it many times and some of us probably even memorized it, meditated on it. But what does it actually mean? You know, Psalm 1 is, you know, in its plainest sense, it's really, there are two, two characters in this psalm, right? Who, who, are the, who are the two characters in Psalm 1? It's not rhetorical. Throw it out. Who are our two characters in Psalm 1? The righteous and the wicked. The blessed man and the wicked, right? And, and as you see this, this blessed man, you know, and, and the wicked, and, and this discussion of the two, it's easy to get a takeaway, and this is the way I've read it a lot, of that this is really sort of, a, at first blush, it seems to be a prescriptive psalm as far as to say, here's the blessed man, here's the good man, you need to be like him. And here's the wicked, don't do what he does. Do what the, do what the good guy does and be blessed don't do the wicked guy. It's almost like a more pious version of seven habits of a highly effective people or something like that, like a self-help book. I think there's a danger that you can fall into to read it like that. I think that it's very easy to read it that way. But is that appropriate? Is that the way to really look at this? Is this a be the good guy type? Is that really what it's saying? Well, to answer that, I think we actually have to look at what the psalm is, actually is saying. I, I believe that if we look at Psalm 1 closely, that we'll find that it's not so much a prescriptive psalm as it is a descriptive psalm. And that might not make sense right now, but put a pin in it, and we'll come, and I think we'll, we'll, we'll see how that... Uh, how that plays out. Let's look at what it's saying. So what is it saying? What does the blessed man actually do? We have verses one, verses one and two. These show us about the blessed man's relationships. And notice where he goes for counsel. Where, do, where does he go to, for counsel? And for his wisdom. You know, it's funny. When I get in the challenges of life, when we get in the challenges of life and in the grime and, and the nastiness of everyday life. You know, there's no shortage of people. This is something I've found. There's no shortage of people who 
are there to speak wisdom into our life, quote-unquote wisdom. Yeah, I, had a, I had a situation years ago, uh, I was working for the government, and I had a, a challenging uh, situation where I had to make a choice. I was faced with a choice. I could follow some protocols and some rules that we had in place, or if you broke them, like a lot of folks in my office were doing, and, and didn't follow the protocols and everything, it, you could really advance your career. And, and so there, it, was, it was a very frustrating time. And I had a lot of people giving me advice during this time. And some of the things I heard were, you know, Chris, you just have to do what's best for you and your family. You know, that actually sounds like pretty good advice, right? I mean, it's kind of hard to argue with. My, my, one of my favorite ones, as people said, was, and, and I've heard people say this, it, it, sounds, it sounds a lot smarter than it really is, but, you know, it's better to ask for forgiveness than permission. And, and you know, you, you hear these things, and, you know, some of it's hard to argue with. Hey, hey, Chris, do what's best for your family. You know, that sounds noble. That sounds good. You know, it's hard to argue with that. And, and you know, the thing about it is the people who are telling me to do this, they're nice guys. They're nice people. And they, they, they are genuinely wanting to see me succeed. And they, they're very well-intentioned. But to be honest with you, I believe that the advice they're giving me is, was in, the, in that situation was complete rubbish. And, and, and why do I say that? I think we have to look at where the blessed man takes his counsel. Verse 2 tells us that he is delighting in the Lord and he's meditating on God's law day and night. And see, even well-intentioned, good-sounding advice from sincere people is tainted by sin. And that's really the problem with with this other advice. It's, in, in certain situations, it might be good, but just because of its source, it is tainted by sin. And you have to compare it and view it through the lens of Scripture to determine whether or not it is, it is appropriate. And, 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 and this, the fact that it's tainted by sin is, is important because you have to understand, here's the thing about our decision-making and why we need to be wary of our counsel. I'm gonna, here's another little secret to let you in on as human beings, we are all born selfish. That's really who we are at our core. And our predilection is toward acting in our own self-interest. And you know, there's a lot of sociological principles of this. And it's, you know, and I, you'll forgive me right now. My undergraduate studies were in business and economics. So I'm going to get really geeky here for a second. But it's amazing in our economic systems, everything, our entire notion of free market economies are built under the, the understanding that we all make our decisions based on what is going to maximize our personal enjoyment. That's really what, uh, you know, if, if I have $100, I'm going to decide how I'm going to spend that $100 in a way that I think is going to maximize my happiness. That's, that's how most of our, our systems are uh, set up. You know, and, and this gets really geeky here. Adam Smith, who is sort of the father of free market economies, of kind of the capitalism economies, he's like a philosopher and economist from like the 1700s. He wrote a book called Wealth of Nations. It's what we base most of our economy on. Here's how he put it. 
He said, it is not of the benevolence of the butcher, the brewer, or the baker that we expect our dinner, but from regard to their own interest. He went on to say, we address ourselves not to their humanity, but to their own self-love. You know, Adam Smith called the, the, he called it the law of self-interest. He said it was the invisible hand that moved everything. That basically, at its core, and he didn't call it, he didn't, he didn't recognize it as sin, but at its core, everything that we do, everything that all of our decision-making, all of our governments, our economies, our systems of labor, they all around, revolve around a notion of pe- people seeking their own self-interest. And it's a me-first attitude that runs our world. Essentially, our world is fueled by sin in a lot of ways. It, it, that is what uh, drives us. And that's ultimately, when we look at Psalm 1, the distinction between the blessed man and the wicked man, isn't it? Because the blessed man, what's he looking to? He's not looking to his own interest. He's not looking to his own self-interest. He meditates on, he doesn't meditate on what is going to maximize his own enjoyment. He, he's meditating quite literally on the Torah. He's, he's meditating on God's wisdom and instruction. So what's painted here, the picture that's painted here is that the blessed man is so tunnel visioned on God and his wisdom and his instruction, on God's character. He's so inextricably intertwined with God that they're in perfect step with one another. They're on the same page in every aspect. And the blessed man is not self-serving. His everything is given to the Lord. Does Does that sound familiar? Because you know, Jesus, when he was asked, what's the greatest commandment? What did, what did he say? Love, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And I, when Aaron Bortz was here, I always loved, he threw in, and resources. I don't, <laughs> and, and, and I think, I, because Aaron used to say that, I always assumed that it's the, uh, the literal translation. But, you know, love God with everything. And hold nothing back. If you love him with everything, you're not holding anything for your self-interest. And that's what you're seeing here in in the blessed man, right? So Psalm 1 really is an easy-to-follow recipe for being the good guy, right? All you have to do is just shed all of your selfishness. Shed all of your selfish desires and ambitions. Get 100% aligned with God 100% of the time. 24-7-365. And then you're the blessed man. This sounds easy enough, right? You're seeing why it's not prescriptive. We can't see this as a prescriptive psalm. If, look, if we're reading Psalm 1 and come away feeling good about ourselves, we might need to look back at how we're reading it. I think we'd be fooling ourselves. This is why we cannot, with full self-awareness, read this as prescriptive. We can't read this and read ourselves in it as the good guy. You know, I think, though, there's a lot of times we can read this and kind of put ourselves in as, as the good guy. Um, I think a lot of that is, is because of pride and because we might look at ourselves and say, well, we're not as bad as the next guy. So, so we have this pride-filled heart. And, I, you know, one of my favorite books is 
Uh, I love the strange case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde with Robert Louis Stevenson. That book is profound. And it has lost a lot of its impact and its meaning because of a lot of crummy uh, applications in modern day. You know, I mean, I think he's like, even like a comic book villain, Mr. Hyde. And I, I don't know, but um, the book itself, the novel is really profound. And you know the story. I mean, Dr. Jekyll is a scientist who develops a potion that actually, as he drinks the potion, he can actually remove his sin nature and it becomes separated from him and it takes its own personification. And near the end, he, and this is the definite Cliff's Notes version of the, the book, but near the end, he suppresses Mr. Hyde and he ceases to take it. And he, he reverts back to Jekyll. And then Stevenson gives us this incredible episode in the book near the end. And this is what he writes, this, this picture. He says, there comes an end to all things. The most capacious measure is filled at last. And this brief condescension to my evil, this is Jekyll talking, finally destroyed the balance of my soul. And yet I was not alarmed. The fall seemed natural, like a return to the old days before I had made my discovery. And listen to the, as he describes this, it was a fine, clear January day, wet underfoot where the frost had melted, but cloudless overhead. And the Regent's Park was full of winter chirrupings and sweet and spring odors. I sat in the sun on a bench, the animal within me licking the chops of memory, the spiritual side a little drowsed, promising subsequent penitence, but not yet moved to begin. After all, I reflected, I was like my neighbors. And then I smiled comparing myself with other men, comparing my active goodwill with the lazy cruelty of their neglect. And at that very moment of that vainglorious thought, a qualm came over me, a horrid nausea and the most deadly shuddering. These passed away and left me faint. And then as in its turn, faintness subsided, I began to be aware of a change in the temper of my thoughts, a greater boldness, a contempt of danger, a solution to the, of the bonds of obligation, I looked down, my clothes hung formlessly on my shrunken limbs, and the hand that lay on my knee was corded and hairy. I was once more Edward Hyde. I mean, did you catch that? What brought Hyde out of Jekyll in this episode? It's not the potion. He's not drinking the potion. What brings it out of him? He's looking at his neighbors. He's looking at everybody else, and he's saying, you know what? Compared to the rest of these guys... I'm not so bad. And whereas before he had to take the, the potion for his sin nature to come out, it's not until he actually starts to have these self-righteous thoughts that he, at that point, transforms into the sin nature again. And that's, you know, a great picture of our self-righteousness. I mean, brothers, we, we can't fall into the trap of reading Scripture in a way that sets ourselves up as a hero and everybody else is the bad guy. And that's the danger I think I've fallen into a lot of times in Psalm 1, is trying to pick out all the ways that, you know, I'm, I do that some of the time, you know. Sometimes I'm meditating on the law of the Lord. And I, I, I like to stop and not think about the day and night part. You know, we, we read Romans chapter 1 a lot of times, and, and, you know, Paul is just hammering on people about sin. 
And, and we hear that preached a lot of times of Romans 1 about the depraved minds in the world and everything. And how often do we stop short at the beginning and not read the beginning of chapter 2 when Paul looks directly at us in, at the church and says, you are that man. And that was you. You know, it, it's very easy to do that. If we're not humbled by the descriptions that we have in Psalm 1, we need to look long and hard at our hearts and our own pride issues. Because remember, there's the blessed man, and that's singular. And then what else? Who else is the other character? It's the wicked. Notice that the wicked is plural, and there's nothing in between the two. It is the blessed man who is 100% in step with God, 100% of the time, and then there's everybody else who is the wicked. You know, it, it, basically, if you're not doing everything the blessed man does, then you're the wicked. You know, honestly, if we read this psalm in full self-awareness, this should be knocking us off of our feet. Because we, in and of ourselves, cannot relate to the blessed man. And, you know, you, you might be feeling pretty crummy right now, and you're in good company. And I don't just mean me. I, I feel crummy about my sin nature all the time. But this actually reminds me of a, uh, one of my favorite pieces of portions of Scripture from the Gospels. When the rich young man comes to Jesus, you know the story. Rich young guy comes to Jesus and he asks Jesus, what do I, he asks him a question. I, I love, I, the question is interesting. He says, what do I need to do to be saved? And what does Jesus say? Jesus says, well, go and follow the law. And the guy says, well, I've done that. Or he says, at first he says, which ones? And Jesus gives him the commandments. He goes, yeah, I've, I've done that. And then what does Jesus say? I, the words are important. Jesus looks at him and says, if you want to be what? If you want to be perfect, go sell everything you own, give it away, and then come to me. What's Jesus saying here? If you want to be perfect, first of all, he's saying, if you want to do what you have to do to be saved, you have to be perfect. And when the guy says, well, what does that, basically he's saying, he doesn't know he's saying it, but he's saying, what does that look like? He's saying, it looks like the Psalm 1 man. It means give up everything that you hold for yourself and then come and follow me. It's 100% alignment with him and holding nothing back. And what's fascinating is the guy goes away upset. And you know who else is upset at the end of that story? It's the disciples. Because they're faced with reality of what this Psalm, man, Psalm 1 man looks like. And their response is, well, then who can be saved? And that's really what, if we're reading this in, in, uh, in full self-awareness, we should be saying that. Well, then who then can be the blessed man? Who then can be saved? I love it. Jesus gives a little bit of hope at the end of the story because he says, well, he gives more than a little bit of hope, but he says, with man, this is impossible. With God, all things are possible. And then his, his life was playing out the rest. So why is Psalm 1 here again? I think it's to bring us to that understanding of who we are. You know, one thing we do in our... Sunday school from time to time is uh, do like a word association. 
a word association game where you've heard word association, you hear a word and you tell me first word that comes to your mind. So we, we would do that with like Psalm 1 here. If I read the first three verses, just blurt out what word comes to your mind after I read verses 1 through 3. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields his fruit in season, and his leaf does not wither, and all he does he prospers. What word pops to your mind? Wisdom. What else? Righteousness. Wisdom, righteousness. Anything else? Sustenance. Awesome. Yeah, we get, you've got, for me, blessings. Blessings, wisdom, righteousness, sustenance. Where does all that come from? It comes from a perfect relationship with God, right? Perfect relationship with God where he gives you sustenance, he gives you wisdom, he gives you righteousness, he gives you blessings. Joy. Joy. Absolutely. He gives you joy. What about the last three verses? The wicked are not so. They're like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the law of the, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Words popped in your mind there. Deceives, decept, deception. What else? Loneliness. Yeah. Temporary. Yeah, that, that, that's, a, that's a frightening one, right? <laughs> Curses. It's a curse. Okay, so you have, on one hand, the Psalms begins with relationship with God, with joy, with wisdom, with sustenance, with righteousness, with a perfect relationship. It ends with loneliness, with despair, with, with death. And in the middle, there's a tree. What does this sound like? It sounds like the beginning of Genesis, doesn't it? The first three chapters. You know, I, I think Psalm 1 is here to remind us of where we are. And we're really there to sum up our condition. And it also, you know, it presents this dilemma. Because it sets up this description of what it looks like to have a perfect relationship of, with God. And yet, it leaves us with an understanding that we don't measure up. Ultimately, that dilemma, thankfully, is answered in Psalm 2. So we look at Psalm 2. Uh, why does the psalmist describe the blessed man if none of us can meet the criteria? Well, Psalm 2 gives us the picture of a king, a messianic king, who rules over the entire world with power, justice, and mercy. And I love these opening three verses here. They remind me, there's a vision that Daniel has in chapter 7 of Daniel. And... Um, in Daniel chapter 7, Daniel gets this vision. He sees these, he looks out over the ocean. And there's these four beasts that are coming out of the ocean. They're gnarly. They're like 
bodies of lions and heads of other stuff and, you know, bears and all. I mean, it's crazy. And they're having this giant wrestling match in the middle of the ocean, right? And, and you know, you, during the pandemic, here's another little story about me. During the pandemic, we got like a three-month free subscription to a streaming service. And one of the streaming services, and, you know, not going to the movies or not going out a whole lot. I was like, well, yeah, we'll, we'll take them up on that. So we were watching. When the subscription ended, the free subscription ended, I came up with all kinds of excuses for Sarah. I'm like, you know, uh, the boys, they really are, uh, you know, they probably didn't get to see, like there were some shows on there that are good for, you know, the, and they didn't get to, we ought to get an extra month. The reason why I did that, honestly, was because things weren't coming out in the theaters. Godzilla versus King Kong was about ready to launch on this streaming service. And I'm going to be honest with you, I, this might be a shock, but I can be a little immature and have, you know, enjoy mental junk food from time to time. And I really wanted to see Godzilla and King Kong fighting. I mean, this sounds great, right? And then they, were, they really got me, spoiler alert, if anybody wants to see it, there's a giant robot Godzilla at the end in the battle too. So it's like, whoa, this was especially awesome for me. But, you know, when we see that with, you know, Daniel's vision of these creatures, giant beasts fighting in the middle of the ocean, it, it does remind me of like a Godzilla versus King Kong type of situation. And while I can enjoy sitting on my couch and watching them duke it out, I don't want to be there when they're doing it. Like, like Daniel was while he was sitting there. I think we can take too much effort to try to discern which beast is which nation. Because at the end of the day, an angel uh, interprets the dream to, for Daniel. And he says, these beasts you see are nations of the earth. That's really what these are. And the nations are battling one another. And he says, the angel explains that. And, you know, while I might enjoy it on the couch, I don't want to be in the midst of it. However, we are. We are in the midst of it. And, you know, it's funny. In, in, in the movie, there are even some characters like, oh, you know, they, they, they think, they're, they're hopeful that Godzilla is going to be the hero or whatever. And, and that's foolish. You sit there and, like, you see this and it's like, well, that's, that's really dumb. And, and you may look at me as immature for enjoying Godzilla. And you're probably right. Um, but how transfixed can we be by these things of, you know, these, if the beasts are nations and human institutions, how transfixed can we be when we're putting our faith in human institutions and in different politics and governments and anything else and putting that as our, as our, what we're putting our faith in? You know, it's funny because, you know, I, I, I used to go to the gym and they, when you, you, near the treadmills, they would have this line of televisions up. And I don't know why they have cable news on televisions at the gym while you're working out, unless it's like really to make you angry to where you're really wanting to go at it or something. But, but yeah, they have cable news all over it. And it used to crack me up because they would have from one spectrum of, and the other right next to each other. And I always like, I always, always wondered like, 
when people are running in front of which TV, what does that say about them? I like to run right in the middle of them. You know, maybe that made me, I don't know, a personality disorder or something. I'm not sure. But, but ultimately, I mean, as you're seeing these two cable news and they might be talking about the same issue, the same individual, with these just complete polar opposite views on them. And, you know, this picture of the nation's raging, you actually see it. It actually is happening in there. And, you know, ultimately, and oh, by the way, when you're watching the cable news, I really thought that Godzilla and King Kong had a lot more civility toward another one another than some of the other these institutions did you know daniel's vision though it doesn't end with the beasts it doesn't end with these and psalm 2 doesn't end with the nations raging actually psalm 2 talks about them raging in vain why are they raging in vain Seven, Daniel 7, 9 through 10 describes God, the Ancient of Days. He is sitting there. He is ruling over all this. He's surveying all of it. It's all within his control. And then 727 states, Then the sovereignty, power, and greatness of all the kingdoms under heaven will be given to the holy people of the Most High, his kingdom will last forever, and all rulers will serve and obey him. You know, all of our human institutions, all of our divisions, they all rage in vain. And Psalm 2 basically asks us why. Why rage in vain? Why put your hope in, in anything in the human institutions of this world? Don't you realize the king is on his throne. I mean, ultimately, that's what this psalm does. I mean, Psalm 1 comes in and it gives us this dilemma of, uh, of not measuring up to the blessed man. We, we read Psalm 1 and we end with this pit in our stomach. And then Psalm 2 comes in and basically looks us in the eye and says, what are you going to do about it? Are you going to put your hope in anything of this world? Are you going to put your hope in politics or human institutions or anything else? Why would you do that? The king is on his throne. You need to be looking to him. You, know, you see Psalm 1. You, as Psalm 2 describes this king this messianic king, it does harken back to that, that Daniel picture of the king's kingdom lasting forever. And you catch the ending of Psalm 2? The ending of Psalm 2 is very, it really is the, the key. It's the linchpin. You know, we read Psalm 1 and we see our own fallenness. You're almost like the the disciples saying, well, then who can be saved? And here comes Psalm 2, comes along, and 2.12 says, blessed are all who take refuge in the king. Where's that word blessed? Where have you seen that? It's Psalm 1. It, it loops us right back. It's the same word, blessed. And to, to your point earlier, 
what does blessed mean? What's the word? The word is ashar. That's the extent of the Hebrew that I'm going to go into here. But it means content. It means satisfied. It means to have joy. It means happy. You see, as we take our refuge in the king, we fulfill and come back to being the blessed man. That's the only way to associate with the blessed man is that having refuge with the king. We are not defined by what we do. We are defined by who we put our refuge in. Yeah, it's, and as we put our refuge in anything other than the king, it's, it's really, it's like, I think C.S. Lewis said, you know, it's like making, being content, to, like a child being content to make mud pies when you could be enjoying a holiday at sea. I mean, that's, that's what you see with the contentment aspect of this. No, you don't want to be doing that. The king is on his throne. And we may have this predilection, our default setting, to make ourselves the heroes of our own story, to be self-serving. But we look at Psalm 1, we know in and of ourselves we can't do this. We're not the blessed man. None of us are. But there is one who does. There's one who looks like the Psalm 1 man, right? Who has the perfect, 100% of the time, perfect in-step relationship with, with the Father? It is the Son. It is Jesus. And Psalm 2 comes in and describes him and his kingdom and his kingship. And then ends with, you, you may have been empty when you're not the blessed man, but blessed are you who puts refuge in the king. Blessed is the man who puts the ref, their refuge in the king. And so when we acknowledge that of ourselves we can't meet the standards that only Jesus meets, we take our refuge in him, that's where we find our contentment. That's where we find our satisfaction. And then the beauty of it is we begin to look like him after as well. We start to love like him when we put our refuge in the king. Let's pray. Father God, I, I just thank you that, thank you for your word that reminds us of who we are. Lord, I've confessed to you that I, my tendency to put myself as the hero of my own story, the story that you're crafting for us, for me. And Lord, I, I, I recognize that I am not that man. I am not that Psalm 1 man. None of us are, but we recognize also that your son is. Your son is capable of what none of us are capable of. Lord, we thank you that you give, us the, you give us his kingdom, that we can take refuge in him. We thank you that you are, that, that kingdom is one of, of power, of justice, of righteousness. Lord, I thank you that you restore us, that you restore us into what you created us to be in the first place, through him. Lord, I pray that you would help us to love like he loves that you would help us to um, be passionate about what he is passionate for. And uh, we just thank you for your sanctifying grace. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.